Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, I think if you're like me, uh, the new year is a great time for your perfectionist tendencies to come out. Um, I don't know how many of you would be self-acclaimed or self-proclaimed perfectionist. I have lots of tendencies that go that way. Lots of times um, when I think uh, a little bit too much about how things are going or how things should be or uh, how other people are doing or all sorts of stuff like that. And so I thought uh, the title of the sermon this morning is A Perfect Start to the New Year. So I thought we'd take a little, a little uh, New Year's quiz. Don't worry, no grades. Um, but it's called, You Might Be a Perfectionist If. You Might Be a Perfectionist If. And my first one is for all you math people. You, think, uh, you might be a perfectionist if you think pencils should come without erasers. All right? You might be a perfectionist if you think pencils should come without erasers. Second one for you worry warts, if you'd ra- you might be a perfectionist if you'd rather do nothing than anything that might possibly go wrong. Um, you'd just rather do nothing. Um, some of you, I won't point you out, but this next one might fit you. Um, and it's me sometimes. You might be a perfectionist if telling others what they do wrong is one of your favorite hobbies. It's just a pastime of yours. You've gotten good at it over the years and very quick at it. Um, the next one, for those of you that are too hard on yourself, you might be a perfectionist if you think you're the only one with problems around here. Um, you think you're the only one with problems. The next one is for those of you that like New Year's resolutions. You might be a perfectionist if you've resolved to be perfect this year in several more areas of your life. Right? In several more areas of your life. You know who you are. Um, this one, for you hostesses out there, keep a perfect home. Um, you might be a perfectionist if you don't know what to do next time because last time you did it so perfectly. Just when everything went so well. This next one's my favorite. My favorite. Um, a pessimistic perfectionist is just one of the worst things in the world. Um, you might be a perfectionist if the glass is not only half empty, but it's also the wrong size, shape, color, and style. Right? <laughs> then you might be. That's my favorite. That's probably me right there. Um, you might be a perfectionist if something not done perfectly had better not be done at all. Um, and then last, for those of you who like measuring things, you might be a perfectionist if when using your yardstick, no one seems to measure up. When using your yardstick, no one seems to measure up. The passage we're going to look at in Philippians, I think Paul might have written it around New Year's. I don't say that because of anything in the biblical data, simply because it's something I think uh, you might have been sitting there thinking, ah, it's a new year. Um, what do I do? What do I do with this? We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. The new year is a good time to look at our lives. It's a good time to think through how the last year went, how next year might go, even though we have no idea, right? How many of you had something happen to you this year that you would have no idea would have happened last year? You know, I mean, you just have no idea what could happen. And so it's a good time. But we want to talk this morning about perfectionism, um, what it means to be a perfectionist, what the Lord wants from us uh, in the ways we think that way. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. We'll be looking at the whole context, but we'll just read these three verses. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says, Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold 
of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which Christ, sorry, press on to the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Would you all bow with me and pray so that we can understand God's word. God, we come to you. This is your word. These are your people. God, we pray that you would teach us by your spirit. God, uh, I know myself, Lord, I have so many tendencies towards being a perfectionist, towards wanting everything right, everything in order, being hard on myself and others. Lord, I pray we might have the attitude of Paul this year and always about what it means to walk with you. Lord, we love you. Teach us this day. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me just, um, I want to define perfectionism for you from the dictionary. It is a long one, but it says this. The dictionary says, a disposition to regard anything short of perfection as unacceptable, especially setting unrealistic, demanding goals accompanied by a disposition that regards failure to achieve them as unacceptable and a sign of personal worthlessness. A sign of personal worthlessness. To shorten it, we're going to say this. It means judging worth based on performance according to a perfect standard. Judging worth based on performance. I know for myself, we're, I'm so likely to judge based on performance. To say, and not just that, but to use a standard. And whether it's actually God's standard, which is perfect, or some standard I've made up in my head of how things are supposed to be or what life's supposed to be like, I'm so apt to look at life and to judge it through, a perfection, through my perfectionist tendencies. To judge myself that way, to judge other people that way, um, just to look at all of life that way. Um, so we're going to talk about that today, and we're going to look at what Paul says. And in the context, if you look with me at verse 7, in the verses right before it, Paul lists, Paul's talking to the Philippians, whom he loved. He loved them. He was a joy to them. He's thankful for them. They are a good example. They've been partners in the ministry with them. And yet there were people among the Philippians who were called Judaizers who wanted to take the law of Moses and use it as a standard to measure people in the church so they could tell who's being spiritual, who's not, who's performing well, who's not, who's got the right credentials, and who doesn't. And so Paul wants to write them about these people and say, don't do this. So what Paul does first is he lists his own credentials. And they're perfect. They're perfect. You couldn't get any better credentials than what Paul had. Look at what he says in verse 7. But what was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I might gain Christ. The word rubbish is like trash, garbage. He says, I consider it lost. All my credentials, all the perfectionist things that I could judge myself by and could say, look, look at how great I'm doing. Paul says, they're, they're lost. They're trash. In, in Bear Valley, we don't understand that because the dump is way too clean in Bear Valley. I don't know if you've been there. They empty it too often, right? Think about a pile of garbage that's been there for months, years, decades, a landfill of filthy nastiness. And Paul says, that's the word for rubbish. 
He says, all those credentials I had, all that great stuff that I thought was awesome in me, I consider it trash. I consider it trash. Why? That he might gain Christ. That's his main goal. He says, I want to gain Christ. I want to know him more. I want to love him more. I want to have him be my one and only. I want to gain Christ. So how is he going to do that? Look down at verse 12. Down at verse 12. We want to do just two attitudes for a perfectionist. The first is this. Two attitudes for a perfectionist. The first is this. Progress, not perfection. Progress, not perfection. Look down at what Paul says in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect. So he says, I want to gain Christ. I want to know him. I want to follow him. I want to have faith in him. But he says, I haven't done it yet. I haven't arrived. The Apostle Paul, an apostle, writes to the Philippians and say, those people, they're saying they're right. They haven't. Paul says, I haven't arrived yet. Haven't gotten there. I'm not perfect. What is actual Christian maturity? Is it just to put on a face when we come to church and to look like everything's okay and to not have any obvious sins in our lives? or at least to do a good job of hiding them and to come and to look perfect in front of everybody? For Paul, the mature Christian life was not one of arrival, but one of pursuit. Not one of arrival. It wasn't being able to say, I don't, this is a list of sins that I've cleared from my life this year. Oh, I read my Bible every single day. I never have a problem with it. Not that those things are bad. Of course we want sin out of our lives. Of course we want to read the scriptures. But he says, Paul says, I haven't arrived. I'm not perfect. Is that our attitude? Not the perfectionist in me, it's not. I'd rather stand up here and have you all think I'm perfect. Have you all think I've read my Bible every day this week? Have you think there's been no sin in my life to speak of this year? Right? I'm just kidding. It's only been 11 hours, 30 minutes. Um, Right? Uh, that's what I would rather think. And yet Paul says that it's not, what, it's, not about, it's not about achievement. It's not about your failures, struggles, victories, but it's about pressing on. We're going to talk more about that in a little bit. But I want to say this. God is more pleased with the one who struggles and yet is pursuing Christ every day than with the one who is seemingly conquered but no longer pursues the Lord. No longer pursues progress. God is not looking. God, we're not perfect. He knows that. Progress is what we're looking for. Um, how many of you guys, uh, some of you made New Year's resolutions. Anybody make a New Year's resolution? Nobody wants to raise their hand now because of what I'm talking about, right? Some of you did. Did anybody make a resolution that said, I would like to be humiliated every day this year? <laughs> if I could choose one thing on my calendar, I'm just going to put make sure and be humiliated this year, right? Did anybody put that? No. No, why? Because we want to be viewed as perfect. Nobody likes being humiliated, and yet, do we realize how often in the Bible being humiliated goes with being blessed? Matthew 23:12. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be what? Exalted. Matthew 5:3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.48 says, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But Jesus is saying that to the Pharisees. 
And what he's doing is he's adjusting their standard because he says, if you want to be a perfectionist, go all the way with it. Not just on the outside. It better be in your thoughts. It better be in your room. It better be everywhere. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Psalm 138.6, though the Lord is on high. This is beautiful. He looks upon the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. Think about that. Though the Lord is on high, he looks upon the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. Proverbs 15.33, the fear of the Lord teaches a man wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Proverbs 16.18, pride goes before destruction, better to be lowly in spirit and among the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud. Isaiah 57.15, for this is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, says the Lord, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. James 4, 6, but God gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5, 5, all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Do you see the attitude here of the scriptures? The attitude of the scriptures is not show yourself to be perfect. The attitude of the scriptures is make progress. And if you're humiliated every once in a while, it's okay. Because God will give you grace. If you're a perfectionist, you never want to be humiliated. I never want to stand up here and be humiliated. And yet the Lord says, be good for me. Be good for you good to make a mistake every once in a while in front of the person you didn't want to make it in front of. Shows them you're not perfect. Back in Philippians chapter 3, if you look down with me, verse 12 again. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Second attitude. So the first attitude of a perfectionist was progress, not perfection. The second one that we'll talk about, and this is the, this is the last one, is don't perform, press on. Don't perform, press on. How many of you have been to a performance? Performance. I play in an orchestra, right? The, the mighty Tehachapi Symphony Orchestra sometimes. We played the Messiah with them just, just the other day. Or just the other day. Whenever Christmas time was. I don't know, a month ago. Um, well, either way. Um, and the deal with an orchestra performance is... You don't clap between movements. Big deal. Don't do it. Highly embarrassing. Um, bad orchestra etiquette to clap. So that you have, you have pieces and they have, they have movements and you don't clap between the movements. But then at the end of the concert, they expect you to clap for about 10 minutes. Right? Because the, the crowd claps and they stand and then the conductor, he takes a bow. And then they're still clapping. And so he goes and gets the first violinist and she takes a bow. And they're still clapping because they know they have to because he's not done getting people yet. And so then he goes and he gets the soloists and they take a bow, right? And then he point, and then they're still clapping, so he points to the whole orchestra and the orchestra takes, everyone stands, takes a bow. And then they bring him flowers and so he takes another bow. Everyone's still clapping. And then they bring the violinist flowers and they're still clapping. Takes, they bring the soloist flowers and finally after about 10 minutes, the whole audience is tired of clapping. 
It's a performance. And then after a performance, they write about it in the paper. And the orchestra talks about it in the back room and they nitpick every little detail. And they, and they go through what could have been better. What did we do better this year, better last year? Better the first concert or the second concert? But what do we do? And the paper says, oh, it was great. Or no, it wasn't as great as last year. And everybody talks in the crowd at the reception about their favorite parts and their worst favorite parts. The deal with the performance is that everyone wants to critique and or take credit and make a big deal about every little thing. Right? Is this a performance, what I'm doing right here? Are you treating it like a performance? Is it a performance what they did up here? When we put on the tea, was it a performance? When somebody um, changes the light bulb in the church, is it a performance to be critiqued? Or is he serving the Lord? What do we, what do we, you see what I mean? Like in my heart, I'm so tempted to turn everything into a performance to either applaud or to critique. And some of you, you have your critique cards out. I mean, your connection cards, right? And you write down... <laughs> You write down all these things, right? What is this a performance? To, is this a performance to critique? Do I get applause if I do a good job and critiques if I do a bad job? Was that Paul's attitude? He says, verse thirteen, brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken a hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on. You know, Paul rebukes the Galatians for their performance attitude. You don't have to turn there, but in Galatians 3, he says, you foolish Galatians. It's one of, it's like an insult word almost. You foolish Galatians, he says, who has bewitched you? He says, it's like you're under some kind of trance, Galatians. What's going on? He says, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. So he says this, he says, as the apostle, I showed you Jesus Christ crucified for your sins. And then he says this, are you so fool? Or he says, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? So he goes to the Galatians. He says, I portrayed Christ as crucified before you for your sins. Did you receive the spirit? Were you saved because you observed the law after that? Because you performed well that day. So I put on my performance and you put on your performance and people were saved. Is that what happened? No, he says, I showed you Jesus Christ crucified for your sins, risen from the dead, and you believed and God saved you. It had nothing to do with how you performed that day. And so he says this to them, are you so foolish after beginning with the spirit? Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Folks, if you're here and you're saved, uh, God accepted you because of Christ not because of your performance. He accepted me because of Christ, not because I was a good youth pastor or a good high schooler or a good college student or because I do get good because I have grades in seminary or something. None of that. And so is he going to continue accepting you because you perform now? Now now we have to perform in order to gain God's acceptance or his favor or the favor of each other. No, it's not a performance. Not only are we tempted that way, but we're also tempted to take the glory, right? When we're perfectionists, we like, if we do something well, Kevin said this, right? Stick it on the refrigerator for everybody to see. In fact, laminate it so it can stay there for years. You know, 
put up a poster about it in the, in the narthex or something. Um, what would it be? What would it be like if the conductor stood up there and instead of taking a bow said, "I, I really conducted that movement wrong. It was too slow." If the first violinist said, "Man, that solo part that I had, I really messed that up." The crowd would be like, "What, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to clap? I don't know what happened." Paul says the one thing he does. Oh, this is what Paul says in Second Corinthians. You guys know this story where God gives him a, a, a thorn in the flesh, right? In First Second Corinthians twelve, he says, "To keep me from being conceited, because of these surpassing revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away, but He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you.' Think about how this works. This is the apostle, right? Now, who knows what was tormenting him?" Nobody. There's like 27 different options. Nobody knows what the thorn in the flesh is. So if you want, I'm not going to solve it today. Right? But all we know is he's being tormented and he's an apostle. And then what did he do? He prayed. Maybe he prayed in front of people even. Lord, I'm being tormented. Would you please take this away? And what happened when he prayed? Nothing. Humiliated? Maybe. And then he prayed again. And what happened the second time? Thank you. Nothing. One person's awake after New Year's. Nothing happened. And then he prayed a third time. And what happened? Nothing. The Lord came to him and said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in what? Weakness. He says, Paul... I'd rather you be weak. And so what does Paul say? So Paul learned a lesson from this. And he says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Do we want to just perform well? Or do we want to actually press on towards what the Lord wants us to do? This is a huge struggle for me. I would ra- a lot of times I would rather perform well if I'm honest with myself. I would rather not boast in my weaknesses. I would rather people not know the struggles. I would rather everybody come and think great, right? It's not what we're supposed to do. Paul says he presses on. What does press on mean? It's like a pursuit. It's like, the, it's like a, a cop show where they're diving over walls, right? Paul says, that's the kind of pursuit I have. I would dive over a wall. I would jump over a fence. I would swim through the ocean. I would do whatever it takes to pursue this goal. What is the goal? It's to press on. How does he do it? Look down with me in verse, um, verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken a hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind. Hendrickson said, this means mental obliteration. Looking back while running forward is always very dangerous. I have a story to illustrate. Um, when I was in like second grade, we had jungle gyms, but they're not like the soft cushion kind that you know today. They were metal all metal, everywhere. And we're playing tag around the jungle gym and I'm running. I'm kind of slow, so I'm looking back and the guy's catching up to me. And I look forward and right about here, there's a bar, just a metal bar that was like a step up onto the rest of the jungle gym and I just plowed right into it. Paul says, forgetting what's behind. 
Um, we don't like to do that, do we? Nope. If it's behind us and it's great, we would like people to recognize it. <laughs> We'd like to hold it up. And if it's behind us and it's not great, or in somebody else's life, we would like to criticize them for it. And we have ministry criticizing ministry. We have old criticizing young and young criticizing old. And didn't you know that you did this wrong and we should do this? I'm not saying there's no like constructive way to look back and do things better. What I am saying is that for the most part, our goal is not behind us. Our goal is not behind us. We could look back over the past six, seven years in this church and say a lot. Say a lot to a lot of people about a lot of things. Is our goal back there? I love this kid. He's my favorite. Man, may your tribe increase. Um, you guys would be getting brownie points too if you were answering my questions. <laughs> my perfection is mine. Um, Paul says, my whole Jewish merit, all that stuff. He says, my failures I put behind me, my accomplishments, all the churches I've planted, all, the, all, the, all this merit that I had as a Jew, I put it behind me. I forget it. And what he says, he says, straining towards what's ahead. Have you ever had something that's just out of reach? Just barely out of reach. And first, you're like, you're reaching for it, right? Just normal reaching. You don't want to look dumb. And then you kind of stretch out for it. And you can't reach it still. And then you're like on one foot doing this thing. With all your might stretching, that's what this word means. Paul says, I, have, I forget what's behind and I strain towards what's ahead. How many of you, you see a race, right, with a photo finish? And the, they're just straining towards the finish. Some of you are going to watch football today and there's going to be the goal line, right? And they're going to give the ball to this bulky, beefy guy. And what's his job? Get in the end zone. That's it, right? That's it. You could have people in pink jumpsuits doing jumping jacks behind him and he wouldn't care because where's his goal? If he's got the football, it's on the, the six-inch mark. His only goal is to plow through about a thousand pounds in front of him, right? And to make it. It doesn't matter what's behind him. That's how we're to live our Christian life. And for, a perfect, for some with perfectionist tendencies, it's hard because you'd rather beat yourself up about it or you'd rather glory in it, or you'd rather beat someone else up about it, or say, yeah, we did this great. Paul didn't do that. He says, I strain forward, I press on for the goal of gaining Christ. What are the motives for this? If you were to look, we don't have time right now, but if you were to look in verses 8, 9, 10, 11, you would see that the goal, the motives for this are the surpassing worth of Christ. Why press on? Because I want to look perfect? No, because Christ is worth it. Why press on? Because I have a righteousness that comes through faith. Why press on? Because the power of Christ's resurrection is given to me. Why press on? Because of the fact that Jesus Christ took hold of me. Why press on? Because I have a prize of a resurrection someday with Jesus Christ. That's when I'll look perfect, by the way. And you will too. It'll be a good day. Why press on? Because there's others pressing on with me. And why press on? Because we love Christ. Not a performance. Not looking perfect. Because we love Christ. 
The problem with perfectionism is not simply that you do things well or you have a high standard, but it's the fact that you're trying to measure up. You're trying to measure up. And you're trying to make other people measure up. And when Jesus, there's no more measuring. If I could just tell you that. In Jesus, there's no more measuring. God loves you because of what Jesus did on the cross. I want you to remember the gospel. Jesus Christ died for us. He lived a perfect life we could not live. We will never live. He died on the cross. God nailed him there, put our sins upon him to take our punishment because I should have been the one there. He died, rose again on the third day and ascended into heaven. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're saved. In Hebrews 10:14 it says, by one sacrifice, God has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Do you see the conundrum there? By one sacrifice, that's Jesus, God has made perfect those who are being made holy. God views you as perfect in his son, and yet we still want to be made holy. What does this mean for our church? Um, rescuing families. Some families are so pressured by perfectionism that it tears them apart from the inside out. You have siblings that are, you have children that are still afraid of their mom who's 60 because of some standard. You have high schoolers under so much pressure to perform that they don't know what to do. You have spouses who think they'll never measure up because perfectionism is tearing apart their family. Um, Don't hold each other to that. We, We don't need to measure one another. We don't need to measure one another. Shepherding souls, we should not be interested so much in measuring the performance of people around us as we should be in helping them forget what's behind and strain towards what's ahead and press on. That's true shepherding, right? It's not to get the ruler out and say, let's see if you can sit in the front pew. How holy are you? I'm sorry, you're two inches short this week. We'll have to ask you to sit in the back. Um, No, shepherding souls is saying... Uh, wherever you're at, uh, we want to help you to press on. Wherever you're at, we want to help you to press on. Last, and being gracious goes right along with that. How does God treat us graciously? Last time I checked, He didn't require my sanctification to be perfect today. What keeps me from being struck dead when I preach out of God's Word? Why should God allow me to get up here and say that I'm preaching his word. Just because he's gracious. <laughs> right? True? I know it's true. I don't know if you know it's true about me, but it is. And so the idea is, God takes us where we're at and allows us to progress in our sanctification. Why? Why? Because it's to his glory and it's to his glory. So why? let's be gracious with one another. Somebody could walk in here with so many obvious sins in their life that everyone's like, whoa, be gracious. Go towards them and say, hey, God wants you to progress in your sanctification. Some of you could be sitting here and you've been in church forever and a day. And yet there's probably still sin in your heart. There's probably still stuff on the inside that goes on that's wrong. There might be some things that you've hidden over the years. We'll take you too. Work with you where we can, where, where you'll allow us. Um, I preach this message not because I got a bad comment card or something like that, because this is me. 
right? Perfectionist tendencies. Just ask the people who know me. Um, we don't have to perform. Just just press on. And you don't have to be perfect. Just make progress, okay? You guys pray with me. God, we love you. Thank you for this day. Um, Lord, I desire this to be encouraging and freeing. Um, Lord, I know in my own heart, it's good to know that the performance isn't what matters. It's good to know that perfection is not what matters. But Lord, that I can press on to know you and that you will allow real, genuine progress in my life. Sometimes you'll allow it through humbling me. Sometimes you'll allow it um, in me learning. Sometimes you'll allow it in us coming alongside one another, helping each other to press on. God, allow us to be gracious. Allow us to truly shepherd. Lord, for families that struggle in this area, I want to pray that your grace would overflow in them, that they would love one another, and um, we wouldn't try to make each other measure up. God, we love you so much. Thank you for Jesus. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Happy New Year to you all. You are dismissed.